we never knew that this technology would work because nobody has done it before. We actually completely failed the very first drone demonstration. We brought the drone to the field, tried to make it work. We spent probably two full days to really make that work. At the very final moment, we got so close to that ammonia power drone operation. But because we were sitting out there too long, the drone was heated out. So all these electronics within the drone was broken. So we were not able to make it work. But, you know, I mean, we stayed optimistic. We fixed the problems quickly. We went out the field again in like two to three weeks or so. We made it work. Accumulation of those experiences as you go through as an entrepreneur, that really makes you stronger. Hi, folks. I'm Connor Gaughan. Welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we talk to innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also build a better world. Transportation. It connects us all and connects the world. And one way that was a bit overlooked until the pandemic was the transportation involved in the supply chain. It provides the foods and goods we need to live our daily lives. If we want a more sustainable future, it's going to be crucial to find a way to transport those things sustainably. And while EV technology is cool and expanding from cars to aviation, electrification does have its limitations. It's not ideal for heavy and long-haul shipping, especially maritime shipping, where the size of the batteries that would be needed to sustain a charge between ports would be prohibitively huge. Which means that some of the most important work being done right now to reduce our global carbon emissions is being done in the field of alternative fuels. Our guest this week is a pioneer in this arena. Dr. Sung Hun Woo is the co-founder and CEO of Amogee, a startup focused on providing an emission-free, energy-dense fuel cell powered by ammonia. Now, not only is Dr. Wu a genius material scientist, he's an MIT doctoral graduate who's been a staff researcher for the Korean Institute of Science and Technology and IBM, he's also a self-taught founder. He went from helping make the incredible breakthrough that underpins Amogee's combustion-free technology to turning that breakthrough into a thriving company about to enter large-scale trials only three years after starting, and he did all of this amidst the pandemic. Getting to chat with Dr. Wu and learning more about the potential of ammonia to decarbonize transportation was a fun science lesson. So let's jump into the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sung Hun. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from originally? So I'm originally from South Korea. I was born and raised in South Korea and came to the States for my graduate study back in 2011. Growing up in South Korea, were you always a science and tech kid? Did you always want to be a scientist? Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning, I always liked the math and sciences and physics and chemistry. So I went to kind of the specialized high school in South Korea as well, focusing on the science and math and technology. And I went to college called Post-Tech, University of Science and Technology. So yeah, it was all about science and technology throughout my life. But not always. I mean, you did have a minor in finance at MIT. Was there a sense that maybe someday you'd want to go start a company or be an entrepreneur? No, to be completely honest, I wanted to explore something different back at MIT. And MIT, I mean, they offered several different minor programs. So, yeah, I took the privilege of being at MIT by taking the opportunity. But back then, to be honest, I never thought I would be starting a company. Yeah. I mean, a lot of your time, a lot of your academic work, both collegiate and doctoral, I think was was focused on material sciences, right? That is right. Yeah. So I'm curious, the overlap, tell us how you kind of connect the dots from your work in material science to energy, to fuel. 
To be honest, my material science covers a lot of different topics. So throughout the PhD program, I worked on an area like the semiconductor physics. So after graduating from MIT, I also worked in the industry area, which is focusing on the semiconductor physics as well, including my experience back in IBM. And now working on the energy problem at the macro scale, But if you look at the semiconductors in those areas, and they're really focused on the nanoscale energy problems. So that's where, I mean, my interest was. And overall, I had a big interest in energy as a whole. We'll dig into the origin story too, and I'm sure we'll connect the dots there. But so you spent your your time both here and in South Korea working in, in sciences, and, and you did some military service, but also in as a staff scientist, right? So what was that like? Tell us about that experience. Sure. I mean, still, South Korea, you have to go to the military service as a man. So, I mean, however, if you have an advanced degree, such as PhD, instead of going to an extra army, you can work at the national laboratories, yeah, contributing the development of the, the research of the country. So that's the pathway that I chose to go with. So after receiving the PhD from MIT, I went to a national lab called KIST, Korea Institute of Science and Technology, where I worked for three years while fulfilling that military duty. But I think it strengthened my knowledge of the semiconductor, fundamental semiconductor physics. Did your time working in the military, can you look back and see how it affected like either your leadership skills in business now or like anything that kind of you unexpectedly came away from that experience with? To be honest, that was the time that I got married with my wife and had a first kid come out. So it gave me the opportunity to really build a family <laughs> and spending time with family because I really never spent time with my parents growing up because I was always in different cities, in different country. So it really strengthened my family relationships, I would call it, and then helped me to take a step back and think about the different opportunities that I can pursue after coming out of the military. So it really gave me the, the time to think about my next steps. Awesome. And you, you mentioned one, you, you spent some time at, at IBM. What was that experience like? After I mean, coming out of the military service, I wanted to come back to the States. So I came back to the States. Initial motivation was I wanted to explore the industries and how essentially corporate America works. So I worked in IBM's research headquarters located in Yorktown Heights, Westchester area to New York. And that experience was fantastic. I mean, IBM has really, I mean, two to three thousands of the amazing researchers working together to really innovate very comprehensive areas of the technology. So yeah, I really like the opportunity to work with the amazing colleagues at IBM as well. And you mentioned it in that discussion of how you got from material sciences to what you do at Amogee, but I don't want to gloss over it because I think for a lot of folks, the topic of semiconductors is very relevant and very exciting and very, very, very popular these days, as well as like the conversation around energy and how much energy usage you know we're seeing as the growth in semiconductors and growth in AI, the, the chip sector in general. So talk to us a little bit about that. Like, what were you doing? What were you learning? What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, I mean, as I was working at IBM, my job, my task was developing the new way of the I mean, semiconductor calculation so that we can better support AI, which consumes a lot of energy. But we want to really minimize the use of energy there. So that's the like extreme low energy semiconductor that I was developing at IBM. And I was able to build more knowledge around the the energy as a whole. And also while working at IBM, of course, it was exciting. But at the same time, I wanted to do more exciting stuff. And that's the opportunity that I started thinking about. I mean, maybe I can start my own journey as an entrepreneur because 
I also had a chance to meet with a couple of people who were working together and went out to build their own companies, for example. So yeah, that's really the initiation of the thinking of building a company. So you're, you're a scientist at IBM. Had you been working on an idea or, or did you start looking for an idea? Like, where were you when that moment hit? Like, okay, here's what I can do. Sure. I mean, Emoji started from 2020. So yeah, we had COVID. So in the beginning, in the middle of the COVID. So that gave me the time to think about the different stuff as well. So while working for IBM, but I wanted to do this I mean, new exciting journey, which is starting a company. So what I did during the time was really reaching out to the people that I knew, especially from the folks that I knew from MIT, because they were exploring the different industries. And then that really helped me to understand the bigger problem, the macro scale energy problem that we have to solve. So I got connected with essentially the, the co-founders of the company by really reaching out to the previous colleagues and the friends and got to know the area about hydrogen and ammonia that sounded fascinating. But none of these guys were yeah, thinking about starting a company, but I really wanted to. So I really yeah, put that together, put that effort together to really start our journey, which became energy. Yeah, so folks in that founding circle are thinking about energy, the energy crisis, they're thinking about alternative sources and clean sources. I guess let's spend a few minutes talking about that, just because I think that'll help people who maybe aren't as familiar understand. Like, give us the background of, of to ammonia, and uh, you know, there's a bunch of different alternative fuel sources out there. Why is this the one that you guys focused on? Sure. I mean, first of all, if we really make the energy transition to make the net zero, all these different fuels are necessary. But ammonia really has the potential to become the dominant fuel. Today, people know ammonia as a fertilizer or the, I mean, the part of the house cleaner, for example. But ammonia is existing chemical. And this is actually the second most produced chemical in the world. So because of the existing use cases, there are pretty well-built infrastructures as well, longer than like 4,000 miles of the pipeline in the United States, 10,000 ammonia storage units, and 200 ports capable of exporting and importing ammonia as well. And at the same time, if you look at this material carefully, this really provides the amazing characteristic to become a fuel because it has the highest energy density among the non-carbon potential fuels, even higher than like liquid hydrogen, while ammonia can be liquid at room temperature. So it's much easier and more economical to move around and also store as well. So, of course, people have known about these amazing properties to become a fuel, but the only missing gap has really been the technology there has not been any technology converting ammonia to power. So that's the technology that Amogy has developed. I mean, there's a bunch of obvious possible use cases once it is fuel. And you guys um, have focused on a couple really interesting ones. So who, who are your customers and kind of what's the sales pitch right now? What, what are you guys focused on selling? Ammonia is really best positioned to help to decarbonize the area where batteries cannot be a solution. So I'm a huge believer of the lithium-ion battery technology, which can electrify a lot of things, including the consumer cars. However, heavy transport or the heavy industry, they really need highly energy-dense liquid fuel, such as ammonia. So that's the area where we are heavily focused on. In specific, maritime shipping, for example, the ships like the, the container ships and cargo ships, they cannot go across the Atlantic or Pacific with batteries, even with the size of the battery as big as a container ship. So those guys have been looking at ammonia as a potential fuel for the last four to five years so that people have been developing the knowledge on ammonia, and there are actually existing ships carrying ammonia internationally. So there are existing infrastructure and safety protocols in place. So because of that existing ecosystem, shipping is becoming the first industry for us to penetrate to 
but we are going to be starting from the shipping we're expanding to other heavy industries as well. And it seems like shipping is a is a low-hanging fruit, not just because they already have the infrastructure and they need the fuel capable of powering it, but also because it's one of the heavier polluters of emissions right now. That seems like a natural place to kind of focus attention. Was, was that kind of part of the calculus early on that you guys wanted to help solve that problem? Yes, partially, I would say, because, I mean, as I was starting the company, I mean, I didn't have any experience in the shipping because shipping is such a particular industry. Until you are actually in the industry, you really don't know what's happening in the industry. So we knew that ammonia is really positioned to best support heavy industry like the shipping. But at the same time, we were building the knowledge as we were building the technology. So in the very beginning, we looked at the different industry like the trucking or the tractors, like the off-road vehicle, as well as the shipping with the same focuses. But we soon realized that shipping is really best focused and most suitable for adopting ammonia as a fuel in the near term. So we started focusing much more on shipping from like year one or two of the company. Yeah. I think we probably have many Americans probably have a particular view of what the of what your kind of average maritime executive or dock worker is like. What was it like to kind of begin? You said you had no experience with the industry. Tell us kind of about those relationships that you've built with the industry. How are those folks? Uh, how'd you find them when you first began working with uh, folks in the industry? Yeah, we've been really supported a lot by our investors and shareholders as well as partners. So the introduction of the shipping goes back to the investment from Amazon, Amazon using their I mean, climate pledge fund. So company, in the very beginning, we demonstrated the very first, I mean, the mobility, which was ammonia-powered drone. And then we were able to receive the funding from Amazon's climate pledge fund. And their ask and the mission, I mean, the vision of using this technology was clear from the beginning that they wanted to see this technology used for really cargo shipping and the container shipping so that we can help them to reduce the operating carbon emissions. Amazon also helped me to understand the shipping industry much, much better. And as I was diving into the industry, I first started going to the European shipping conferences, like countries like the Norway and Scandinavian countries, where I believe there are probably the most of the innovating companies located within the maritime shipping industry because they have the most stringent rules and biggest ambitions to when it comes to decarbonization of the shipping. So I started going to the conferences in Europe and Norway and, and Sweden, and that really helped me to better understand where the innovation is happening in the shipping and how that is translated into the massive scale of the industry platform. So that was the beginning of my journey in shipping. But soon after, we started making our own presence in Norway, which I believe is the most progressive country when it comes to the yeah, decarbonization of the shipping. And that really further helped us to be deeply connected in the shipping industry as a whole. As, a, as the company's leader, you, know, you clearly have a, a science and lab background. How do you balance those two things, being kind of wanting to be present in the technology and science side of things, but also you know, the leadership side of things? Sure, that's a good question. I mean, even if I have a, a science and technology background, but we have our own science and technology leaders of the organization who are really leading that I mean, day-to-day technology development to make the product that the customer needs. But my focus has been mostly around really bringing the capital bringing the resources to the organization and also building up the leadership team and the executive team who are capable of executing our milestones and deliverables. So yeah, my role has really been around putting the right people at the right place. 
and bringing the right investors in right capital, which has been, I believe, successful for the last three years. But we have a long way to go. And I mean, what was it like to try to recruit those folks amidst COVID, right? That was a really hard time to be building a company. That is right. But of course, however, however I mean, to some extent, during the COVID, people were thinking about doing something different, like myself, right? So we were taking advantage of COVID, meaning people had more time to think about different opportunities. So the way that we grew the team in the beginning, probably up to like 40 to 50 people, it was really, I mean, myself and the other founders and reaching out to the people who may not be looking for jobs, but we were really pitching our vision, mission and ideas and the business and technology. And fortunately, we were able to recruit really the amazing talents from the market. So that became really the core foundation of the entire organization which is, yeah, pushing the whole journey forward. In those, I mean, the last few years, any moments that you can look back on and where you thought, this might not work, oh my gosh, what did we get ourselves into? You, you kind of had that moment of doubt. I think many founders and leaders do. So I'm curious what that moment might've been like for you and, and when that was and what that was like. Yeah, for sure, we had many. But to be honest, I'm a pretty optimistic person. So I stayed always optimistic, regardless of whatever challenges we were handling. When the company was small, I mean, with the seed stage of the company, we were developing the technology, but we never knew that this technology would work because nobody has done it before. And we were running out of the initial seed funding and we had to make this demo work. So we we actually completely failed the very first drone demonstration. We brought the drone to the field, tried to make it work. We spent probably two full days to really make that work. At the very final moment, we got so close to that ammonia power drone operation. But because we were sitting out there too long, the drone was heated up. So all these electronics within the drone was broken. So we were not able to make it work. So that was such a frustrating moment because company was running out of cash back then as well. But, you know, I mean, we stayed optimistic. We fixed the problems quickly. We went out to the field again in like two to three weeks or so. We made it work. I mean... Yeah, it was one of these the most memorable and amazing moments that I still have as I'm building this company. Yeah. Accumulation of those experiences as you go through as an entrepreneur, that really makes you stronger. So that, of course, now we have many challenges in the organization as well, because now we are dealing with the manufacturing and sourcing and partnerships, which always comes together with the different challenges. But I stay more and more optimistic that we can go through it and we have a great team. The demo sounds like a really powerful moment, both the failure and the success. So what are some of the, the lessons that you are learning kind of on the leadership side? What, what business lessons have you picked up in the last couple of years through starting this? So first of all, I never built a company before. So I was never sitting on this side of company. I was always sitting on the other side of company. So what I'm learning as I'm building this organization together with our team is it really comes down to people, you know, I mean, regardless how great your idea is, how great your yeah, technology is, you need people who have to be oriented around the mission and the vision of the organization who are willing to go above and beyond to make that happen. So if we focus a lot on the people that we are bringing to the organization. The startup like Amazon is not for everybody. This is really demanding. This is really hard and tough. But at the end of the day, you will achieve amazing things together as a team. So we are really focused on finding the right people to lead the organization. Because that's one of the learnings that I have. And I am still uh, learning a lot every day basis because different stage of the company requires different skill set from the CEO. 
So that is what I have to deliver to our team as well. And talk us through where you're at now in the life cycle and kind of what you're excited about from a growth perspective coming up. So company, I mean, Amazon today is 180 people company. So we have a presence here in Brooklyn as headquarters where we started from, essentially from a single desk in a startup incubator place. And we have 60, 70 people in Houston because we are building the first uh, manufacturing facility where we are investing $40 million to make the work. And then we also have the two international offices, one in Norway, the other in Singapore. And company raised, over the course of last three years, we raised $220 million from investors, including Amazon, Saudi Aramco, Temasek, Mitsubishi SK, and many other strategic partners who are really believing in our mission and vision. So that's where we are in terms of the numbers. But in terms of the stages, I mean, company, this is such a critical stage because we are really transforming the company from technology and R&D company towards the commercial organization. So as we are maturing the technology and building the very first product, now we are more engaged with the customers and the market so that we can really provide the product to the customer and start making real, real impact in the, reducing the carbon emission, the maritime shipping, which we are excited for. Are there any kind of misconceptions about what Amogee does? Like, you know, what are people's missing about either Amogee's work or the industry in general? It's really about the potential of the ammonia as a fuel. Because still, I mean, ammonia is widely available, used heavily in the industry, like the agriculture industry. But if you think about using ammonia as a fuel, because ammonia also has the downside, which is toxicity. So how can I use a toxic substance as a fuel? So that's, I think, uh, part of the misconception existing in the industry. To be honest, I didn't know about ammonia either in the beginning. So when I started this company, what I first did as a leader of the organization is I actually went out to the field, like the Corn Belt, like the Midwest area. I went to the ammonia terminals in Louisiana to see what's happening with the ammonia today. And that really gave me the confidence because, I mean, that's the massive scale of the ammonia that people are handling everyday basis. So that really gave me the confidence that, well, this can be very well transferred to the fuel and the different industries, like the heavy industries. And that knowledge is not there yet. However, I mean, people are, I mean, many industry stakeholders are building up that knowledge quickly. So now, I mean, there are more companies more bullish on ammonia as a fuel because they understand that safety mitigation and management system is already in place. And we've used it long enough, longer than 100 years in the industry. So that's probably one area I'm heavily focused on as well. So education piece is important. What's What's been the most successful part of educating people? Like what, have you, what have you noticed resonates with folks? For you, you said just going down and seeing Louisiana and seeing the terminals kind of helped educate you, but you can't bring everyone with you to Louisiana. So what have you found has been a most, the most successful um, aspect of the educational conversation with folks? Really, Amogee's demonstrations that have been the most powerful because we really physically demonstrated how ammonia can really power those mobilities like drones, tractor, truck. So our physical demonstration really helped them to better understand the use of the ammonia as a fuel. I mean, at your core, you're, you're building something that will help you know, transition uh, the economy towards a cleaner, a cleaner fuel, cleaner economy. I'm curious what the company's view is towards sustainability. How do you guys think about sustainability internally, and what do you anticipate the biggest kind of decarbonization gains being? We are excited to see many of this sustainability technology coming out to the market, like the electric vehicles and the solar and wind, now offering even cheaper power compared to the fossil fuel, which is amazing. 
However, we also believe, and now we really have to focus on the hard to abate areas, like hard to decarbonize sectors, like the shipping or the power chain. Because, for example, shipping, I mean, they produce like barely a metric ton of the CO2 every year. Just to help your understanding, that is the equivalent to the entire CO2 coming out of Germany or Japan. So that's massive uh, amount of the CO2. And also, we are shipping like 90% of all the products and materials using shipping. So it has to be there. So we cannot stop shipping. So that's how critical the problem is, how serious the problem is. Because if you look at the shipping industry, unfortunately, we have not made much of the progress yet. But that urgency is also being rapidly developed within the industry. So what Amogy sees is really using this kind of technology so that we can start decarbonizing, hard to decarbonize industries, which have to be there so that we can truly make this planet sustainable. And your process, I know, for generating power from ammonia is unique in that it doesn't utilize combustion. So without giving anything proprietary away, I'm curious if you could talk like, talk us through how it works, and why it's a more sustainable way to do it. Sure. So as I said in the beginning, I mean, ammonia is high energy density, it's affordable, it's available, people have known about it. But the reason why we have not had any technology converting ammonia to power is if you think about using chemical as a fuel, you'd normally burn it to generate the power, like the engine. But ammonia, unfortunately, is not combustible. You cannot burn it. So the way to burn it is mixing ammonia together with diesel to make it combustible then you start generating greenhouse gas again. So our approach is instead of combusting ammonia, we use another chemical process called cracking, which is also called the reforming. So there is a, a catalyst bed with the catalyst of energy, which takes ammonia, and that catalyst breaks ammonia to hydrogen, nitrogen. And then we connect this cracking right next to the fuel cell, hydrogen fuel cell, mature technology. Then hydrogen goes to the fuel cell to generate the power. Not combusting ammonia, there's no, I mean, other problems coming out of that emission from. So we can really provide 100% zero emission solution using this kind of technology. And also we can leverage the existing mature technology like hydrogen fuel cell to provide a mature technology to our customers too. I mean, it seems like you mentioned this early on too, really for net zero, it's going to take all these technologies, right, being used wherever we can. And I know hydrogen in particular is uh, there's a, a lot of research and development continuing in that. And if I'm not mistaken, there was like seven new hydrogen hubs received funding this weekend, I think, or last week. So talk about kind of your partnership with on a macro scale that industry and how you think about the progress of hydrogen as a technology alongside the progress of energy and what the technology you're producing. Uh, Amogy's technology is essentially enabling the hydrogen economy because we are using ammonia as hydrogen carrier, the way to move around hydrogen, because there has been a lot of focus on hydrogen for probably the last decade. There has been hydrogen like commercial cars, like Toyota Mirai is commercially available. Hyundai Motors have been making hydrogen-powered trucks, but those have not been able to penetrate to the market volume, not because of the fear cell, because of the Hydrogen, which is difficult to move around, storage and transportation of the hydrogen is the fundamental issue. So, for example, we today produce hydrogen at $3 per kilogram. But if you go to the fueling station in California or Germany and, and France, you have to pay at least $25. So that like 7x and 8x gap is coming from the inefficiency, therefore expensive process of the transportation storage. So Amogy essentially provides technology where you can very affordably and easily move around hydrogen as an ammonia because hydrogen is also the feedstock of the ammonia. 
do you make the ammonia and move ammonia to your, I mean, the vehicle, and we break the ammonia to hydrogen locally, then we can still use the existing hydrogen propulsion technology fuel cell. So we are really enabling the use of the hydrogen as an ammonia in the transportation sectors where storage and transportation is extremely important. Yeah. Across the entire renewable energy industry, um, we've had kind of conversations with quite a few leaders in the last couple of seasons. But it seems like one thing that is always under consideration is just capacity and, and whether that comes from consistency of sourcing of materials. I'm curious, like, how do you guys think about the sourcing side of, of things? There are two things uh, within our energy scope. First is sourcing ammonia. The other is sourcing, I mean, all these necessary components for our technology. So first of all, sourcing ammonia, that's really where we can leverage the existing infrastructure, existing production capacity, as well as the heavy investment happening in the United States around the, around the Gulf Coast and also globally on blue and green ammonia. So we are not really concerned about sourcing low-carbon ammonia in the near future because we are also collaborating heavily with the ammonia producers. Just as an example, company is now building the really the world first ammonia power ship, like the megawatt scale tugboat that we announced a few months ago, which we will, will be available in the next few months. So we are actually sourcing green ammonia from one of our ammonia producing partners, Yara, to really demonstrate the full scale decarbonization from the beginning. And when it comes to the sourcing of our own technology equipments and components, of course, I mean, this type of industry has not been fully developed yet. So there is not like fully developed supply chain existing today, which is part of the challenge. But there are companies, the parts suppliers, equipment suppliers coming to hydrogen industry quickly. So we see more and more companies developing necessary technology for our system. But of course, we have lack of the fully developed supply chain today, but it is being rapidly developed. So in the next few years, I mean, we see, I mean, this whole developed ecosystem will also provide opportunity to reduce the cost of the system as well. What are the initiatives or programs you're most excited for, like the biggest milestones coming up that you're looking forward to? As we mentioned, I mean, last Friday, current administration announced a $7 billion investment to hydrogen hubs, which is exciting. And IRA, the further specification is going to be coming out in the next few months as well which will help the whole hydrogen and ammonia industry take off. So we are looking forward to seeing that. In addition, if you look at the industry-specific regulations, for example, IMO, International Maritime Organization, which is overseeing the entire regulation of the maritime shipping, they actually raised the bar this summer. So previous guideline was reducing 50% CO2 by 2050. But this summer, July 2023, they announced a new guideline, 100% CO2 reduction by 2050. So that regulation is trickling down to the local regulations in the European Union, in the United States. So that being formed and actually coming to industry as a regulation and, and, and policies, that's something that we are looking forward to seeing more. Yeah. I'm curious where the name come from, Amogy. Ammonia plus energy. So... Yeah, okay. we didn't spend much time, to be honest, to really come up with that <laughs> name and the logo. For example, I mean, one of the things in the beginning, we had to come up with the logo and especially the design and things like that, but I really don't have any experience with that. So I, I think I paid like $100 to a random person in, in a website, like a Fiverr, yeah, <laughs> to come up with the logo, which became the logo of Amish today. <laughs> That's awesome. There you go. So you've kind of personally been at the forefront now of a couple different important technological revolutions, right? One with IBM and then now the clean tech, clean energy space. 
I'm curious what the next discovery you have your eye on is. What are the biggest, most important areas that people are working on now that are where the next breakthrough will be down the road? For me personally, I mean, next 30, probably 20 to 30 years will be all about the decarbonization because we already started seeing some of the, I mean, climate changes and how climate change is really impacting on people's lives. So we, unfortunately, will see more of them coming because we have not yet done our job yet. So next 20, 30 years, the decarbonization will be continuously becoming more and more important agenda of the generation, not just for next generation, really for our own generations as well. So energy is, is, is really one small part within whole sustainability. So I want to see, and we want to be part of the many more opportunities which can make this planet more and more sustainable. So that's how I want to spend my energy and the career to really make that happen. You, you mentioned earlier you're kind of an optimist, and I think even in your last answer, you can sense that there's optimism that you believe that we can you know, turn things around and and clean up the economy. I'm curious, you know, how do you stay positive? How do you and how do you motivate your team to stay positive when sometimes negative headlines can be daunting? You know. Of course, there are always struggles and challenges, but to stay positive, I just look at our team and people and people we brought to the organization. Because I'm, I mean, such a small person, I can't really make the changes, but we really brought great team instead of the people who are able to make the changes together collectively, collaboratively. So that's the, the biggest source of the positivity and optimism, at least for me. And I think our team may be the same because they, I mean, even if they can be only the small part of the world, but the whole team that we brought in can really make yeah, this whole journey forward. So that's how, how we move forward every day. Have you stopped to think about kind of long-term what you want your legacy to look like 10, 20, 30, 40 years? You know, what, when your kids are grown, what they'll say your legacy was, or what you did or what the impact you made? Yeah, I even from my, I mean, previous company like IBM or from my education, what I really wanted to see is really contributing to make the society a better place. So I have a five-year-old kid. When he grows up and sees what I've done, I want him to see that I have made a positive contribution to the world, positive contribution to the people, so that, yeah, that contribution is making the world a better place. I'm curious if you've noticed from being raised overseas and then building this company here in the States, any difference in, in perspective on things like sustainability? Like, how do folks view it here versus uh, how folks in, in South Korea view it or talk about it? Yeah, I think the sustainability at this point is really the global agenda. So, but of course, people feel differently around the urgency. So, for example, I mean, we also have South Korean investors and also Japanese, Singaporean investors. I think they see this more as a more urgent problem because, I mean, those people in those countries are unfortunately relying on all this import of the energies from the somewhere else, like Middle East or United States. And they don't have much of the natural resources, natural energy, like the solar and wind. So that, yeah, brings more urgency to those countries, which is helping them to transition to more sustainable, like the energy or the sustainable countries as a whole. Picker. But in the U.S., of course, we share the urgency, but we also have the capital and we have the I mean, ability to make that happen. And it's all, it all comes down to, I would say, the collaboration. So that urgency coming from our East Asian folks, 
can be yeah, shared within this community, then we can build technology, we can manufacture technology to help them as well as helping ourselves in the States as well. It feels like there's been a couple of different evolutions in in the American economic perspective on shipping in the last five, 10 years. We've had some labor situations that have forced onto people's minds for the first time. I'm curious how you would talk about the importance of shipping, you know, in general to Americans who, who maybe previously it wasn't part of their consciousness on a daily basis. Shipping is a, such an important industry for United States and Americans because, I mean, most of the stuff that we use, where it comes from shipping, first of all. And also we have huge inland I mean, water connectivity, which we can leverage. We are already leveraging to move around our materials, products, and energies, all using the American-built ships, basically. So shipping is important. I think, uh, I mean, at least within the industry, people acknowledge that. But we also have the different guidelines, such as Jones Act, for example. But to enable sustainable shipping, we really have to probably collaborate more tightly because Jones Act involves the regulators and policymakers to come together. So changing the industry to be the sustainable shipping will take additional effort in the United States within the American people. But at the same time, we can make that happen because I mean, we also talk to Coast Guard every day and they are really caring about the energy issues. Because once you're on the ship, you can actually see massive amount of greenhouse gas you are generating. So the yeah, education is being built rapidly. So we stay optimistic about making changes within states. Awesome. Where can folks learn more? If you want, if someone wanted to figure out more, see more, learn more, where should we send them? We have a website, pretty well built, with amoji.co, A-M-O-G-Y.co. That is why our website. So our website has the materials, including what is ammonia, what is ammonia technology, and how this connects together with the industry. At the same time, we regularly publish the white papers. So we published the two white papers previously, and we are publishing the third white paper. So more and more materials coming out. And Amoji website has really the all information you need. And if you are more interested, you are always hiring people as well. Big thanks to Dr. Wu for joining us today. This episode was produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to the Consensus team, folks like Kate Tucker, creative director, Greg Hurgle on research, Patrick Gallagher. Consensus and Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a like or rating. It really helps us out. And if you're interested in telling your story as a guest or just want to stay in the know, connect with me on LinkedIn. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media produced in association with Reasonable Volume. All right, see you next week.